back to Lightshed Research, a podcast that puts our research notes in your ears for your convenience. It's great that we can put our Zoom events now on podcast form. I hope you're enjoying it. In this latest one, we interviewed Matt Desch, the CEO of Iridium, a stock I recently launched coverage on. We really went back to the history of Iridium, back to when Motorola first invested in it, the cost to do that, how they differ to what it costs to invest in a Leo network today, and maybe some of the challenges that many of the Leo constellations that are planned are going to have. We talked about the advantages of, of the Iridium constellation compared to others in terms of coverage and the spectrum that they use. And we also talked about some of the new applications that Iridium satellite has enabled in terms of better GPS services through a minority-owned company, Satellus, and Arion, which can actually make your flights between New York and London go faster. We ended on Matt's leverage targets and talked about free cash flow and maybe what to do with it, whether it's share repurchase or dividends. So without further ado, enjoy our interview with Matt Desch, CEO of Iridium, Ken Levy, uh, the head of IR. And don't forget, you can always speed it up to 1.5 if you want to get through this faster. Thanks, Matt and Ken, for joining us um, on our journey through understanding Iridium. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, we launched coverage of this company yesterday with a buy rating and, and a $50 target. But I thought there's a lot of people out there that kind of, you know, they've heard about Iridium, kind of remember it from the 90s, but maybe haven't gotten caught up from you know, what happened in the 90s to where we are today. So I wanted to kind of quickly go through the brief history. Interestingly, I didn't know this when I launched coverage yesterday, but fortunately, it was the 20-year anniversary uh, of when Iridium relaunched after the bankruptcy um, back in 2001. Um, But let's go back before that. I mean, Matt, you and I have known each other really since I think the late 90s when you were at Norta. I remember the meetings that we used to do when you were running... Um, the wireless infrastructure biz, uh, business there. Back when you were there, actually even before then, this is when Iridium was first contemplated. I think it goes back to, to 1987 and funded by Motorola, a $7 billion project, which is obviously a lot more expensive than you spent on your project. Um, they didn't begin service, even though it's kind of the contemplation that started in um, in 1987. They didn't really begin service until 1998, uh, the application was telephones primarily. I mean, I think it was the, they were charging probably, what, 10 or $15 per minute per call at the time. Cellular networks were, were just not as good. Um, and then within a year, they went bankrupt. And the fascinating thing about the bankruptcy to me was, I guess, Dan, how do you pronounce his name? Kalesi? Um, Kalusi. Uh, bought Iridium um, out of bankruptcy for $25 million. Apparently, it was going to cost... $30 million to decommission the satellites. So he got it for less than that because the government, I think at the time, was worried about, I guess, potential debris, the concern that you know that would hit. And then military, obviously military found this to be an essential service. And ultimately, military, I guess, really is what saved this, right? I mean, in, in 2000, the initial part of it, at least, in, in that, like, okay, you can shut off your earth station. So you know, executives that were using phones or whatever that really liked the service, however few of them there were, um, they got shut off, but the military didn't. They kept their earth station and then they they committed to a $75 million contract. I believe that was in 2000. So that kind of kept it around. Um, and then you appeared on the scene in 2006. So by the time you got there in 2006, what was your thought process in in joining this because obviously there've been a lot of other bankruptcies in the space, um, the space space, the space industry at that time. What were you thinking? Um, and, and when you first were deciding to come on, um, and join this, this project. Yeah, I did a good job of getting some, some of the key history points. If anybody really is interested, there's actually a whole site called Iridium, uh, museum.com that sort of goes through the timeline and history and all those sort of things. And, and by the way, it's, it's useful kind of going back there, not so much to relive our history, but because there's a lot of excitement in space again. And there's some there's some parallel themes that are going from the late 90s when we were all excited originally. I thought, you know, it was too much money to build a network to do what it was doing as the president of Nortel. But, you know, when I got 
the call in 2006, um, and I think I, by the way, I was the sixth CEO in six years, because uh, you know, they were struggling to sort of figure out exactly what to do with this system. Some of the fundamental important decisions about that set the company up for long-term growth had been made already. So I don't take credit for those. Things like moving from a retail to a wholesale business model, um, building sort of a partner ecosystem that takes us to market so we didn't have to put the cost and we could generate really high operating margins. That was really in place. They had moved into IoT the year or two before and said, you know, there must be, this is very, IoT is very much uh, a perfect network for this network. You know, maybe we should build the first device. It was very large and expensive, but at least they were starting to being built into some early IoT applications. So I didn't have to do those things, but and you didn't, and you, and you didn't have all the debt to you didn't have the debt to deal with as well. So with the military contract, they were actually able to drop prices for voice from I think it was like like I said ten or fifteen dollars to like a dollar fifty. So there yeah, was some revenue. We charge a little less than a dollar, but retail, you know, people can make money uh, by charging over a dollar for it. And so everybody was happy and was making money, and it was a unique service. It still was the best satellite phone service, and we still sell that by the way today. But most of you know the growth today, as you know, is in data. Um, but you're right. We, the, the business models, were, we were actually growing quite fast by even 2006. We were growing considerably, almost at an average of 10% a year, maybe even more in many years, 15%, because we still had this extremely unique network. Nobody else had anything like it. Um, we were offering, there were a couple other companies sort of in our general space, but not doing it as well as we were. Companies like Inmarsat and Global Star and Thuraya and, you know, even a couple others uh, that sort of gone by the wayside, like Terastar and a couple others, uh, but nobody really came too much to compete with us. And so we had a really strong lane to operate and we had a great relationship with the DOD, as you said, and they were happy with the unique service and how we were able to support them. Uh, and so my thesis coming in was, wow, this is a really, really powerful technical platform. It, it's good. It can do IOT extremely well. It can do a lot of things no other network can do in the world. My problem is is it has a finite life, you know? I mean, when you build a cellular network, you can kind of keep bolting on new technology to it every year. But this is one where they were pretty sure it would go until about 2015. It was originally designed to only go about 10 years, but it was gonna get at least 15 years. In the end, you know, it's such a flexible software-defined architecture that we were able to get over 20 years out of it, thank God, because it gave us plenty of time to both use our own money, but finance a replacement network, which, was a big capital expense. You know, we had to spend $3 billion or so um, over 10 years uh, between like 2009 and 2019. So that was a big deal. And part of that was, and part of that, it's, it's also when you talk about the similarities to the 90s, the other part of that was the fact that you were SPAC'd in 2009. Well, um, nobody knew what a SPAC was then. Now they do. <laughs> you know, uh, it's all come around. Now, we're, now everybody's looking at us as the uh, first successful SPAC, even though in 2000. It was a hard uh, time, as you remember, 2008, 2009 to do this was not, you know, there's some parallels, uh, but, you know, the whole financial system was broken and SPAC was one of the only ways to get in public, but we needed to uh, get You stepped public. into 2007 and then you walked into 2008, so not exactly, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, you walked in 2006, the new plan was 2007 announced. Then you have the financial crisis in 2008. Great timing, Matt. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm always good at timing. But you know, that's <laughs> one of the many miracles that everybody thinks we've overcome over the years. And, and it, it, uh, we've, we've overcome lots of challenges, but it's made us very resilient, very savvy, very, um, I mean, we're very pragmatic and very practical about things. I'm not sure that's really the, the place where the industry is today, where there's a lot of ideas being sort of thrown at the wall and everything. We've We've navigated, but as I said, when I went, when I came in, my thesis was very clear. Clear. I, I had come from the equipment infrastructure world that we talked about. And by the way, you were a lot younger back then. And, uh, you know, I still don't know where your gray hair is yet. But um, uh, you know, I, I said that world is commoditizing, and I don't want to be in a commodity world. I don't want to put a be in a capex rich business and suddenly have ten other people do the same thing I'm doing. Which, by the way, has happened in the broadband sector of satellite, which isn't what we do. Uh, I really thought this is a powerful platform. It has inter-satellite links, which means 100% global coverage. It's still the only company in the world that has 100% global coverage. You know, other people have sort of regional coverage. It's close to the earth. So it's a really 
easy, low power, highly mobile applications. Everybody else was far away from Earth, so they needed big, big antennas and big batteries. And I thought, what a fantastic platform. And by the way, everything's like software defined. And so the satellites were upgradable, the ground was upgradable, we owned all this IP. I thought, you know, this would be like the early days of wireless. We could innovate all around this with all these new devices, with all these great partners. I, I think we had 200 partners when it came. We got like 450 to 500 today that are taking us to market. And with that, it's it's really kind of, uh, you know, even as we grew, by the way, through that $3 billion market thing over 10 years, we grew at like 10% a year on the bottom line. So we were really growing. It wasn't like we were going to invent something and then we'd see if the dogs eat the dog food, right? It was going to be, we the dogs ate the dog food. They liked our network. They liked what we did. They, they saw how unique it was. And by the way, nobody has come in to kind of compete with us anew. Saying yeah. we're well, I mean, part of that's the length, which we'll get into in terms of how long this takes. But so in 2010, then you signed your contract with um, Telus. Tell, do I pronounce that right? Telus. 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 Excuse me. Um, and then obviously SpaceX in, in, in terms of the launch. And, and the number, I think, ended up being, what, $4 billion compared to the seven, I think, originally. When you no, think about those. Three. It was totally in 3.1 or something like that. It was approximately With the three. Earth stations and everything, 3.1. Right? Everything. That was all yeah. in. It was $3 billion, which, by the way, they originally told me in 2006, they said, I think it'll cost four. And they said, no, it's going to cost a little less than three. It turned out to be three. Uh, and they said, why? I mean, I said, because we can't, we can't raise enough money. <laughs> <laughs> fit, fit the bill of what you can raise. So yeah. what, what do you think the primary, I know you weren't there for the first launch. Um, what was the primary difference between the seven and three? And then I guess more importantly, why have those costs not dropped? Because when you think about what Telesat has talked about in terms of their launch, um, I'm not saying it's exactly the same. Um, obviously, we don't know what Elon's spending. It could be substantially more. Um, there's other Leos that are out there. What was the change from the first launch to 2010? Why did well, you choose Thelus? Thelus. And then kind of yeah, what's, what's been happening since then? So the first time when, when Motorola did this uh, in the 90s, they had to invent everything from scratch. There was no satellite systems up there. All satellites at those times were geostationary satellites, one of giant $500 million satellites sitting in the equator. Yep. And they said, we're going to do this LEO thing. And everybody said, you're crazy. Nobody goes in LEO except for spy satellites. And they said, we're going to put inter-satellite links. Nobody had done inter-satellite links except like the CIA satellites, you know, or whatever. Yep. So um, so this was a really big deal, and they had to invent everything, right? All the software, um, they did all the ground systems. And by the way, it was a completely They meeting Motorola for the original, uh, the original plan, right? And it was Motorola. They said, we can spend anything we want to because right. we're going to get a, a billion subscribers in the first Yeah, I mean, years. I covered Motorola at the time. I remember, like, it was a, it was a pet project of Galvin at the time that this was going to be huge. And, and, yeah, and, you, and know. you know, this is one of those things that probably they figured out that it wouldn't turn out. But by, your, you know, when you're eight years in and you're only two years away you keep going you know and there's a bit of a group thing there's books written about this by the way a good one called eccentric orbits that i recommend uh okay uh had nothing to do with it but you know the writer did a good job of describing that whole bankruptcy and getting out of bankruptcy process but so this time around we could repurpose a lot of the stuff like we really one of the one of the requirements right up front was i don't want to have anybody have to change their terminal because I want to keep growing. I don't want anybody to wait for the new network. That would be the worst thing to happen over seven years is people go, I'll just wait and I'll buy the product when you get it. So we said, I don't want a customer to even know that a new satellite takes over for an old satellite. And they said, that's really hard to do. But if you do that, then your business is assured. Um, so we said, even repurpose the software if you can. You might have to re rewrite sort of an operating system underneath it, but take the software so that we're not trying to recreate how it is that we, you know, a phone or an IoT device or a broadband system. I mean, do you um, have any but, regrets now? But by the way, make it much more powerful and much more capable. And and so and we did a competitive deal. So we we forced a bunch of people to compete instead of Motorola saying I'll do it myself. And we said, uh, by the way, my first launch contract. I mean, the first company to say what they would launch, they said 1.3 billion to launch the whole thing. Elon came back to me and said less than 500 million. It was like 450 million. It was, it was a light difference. Do you think he made and, any and margin? Only, do, you think he, do you think Elon never, made any margin on that deal? I don't know, but at the time he had never had a successful launch. So I, you know, there right. was a little bit of a, you know, sure. I had a lot of off ramps. Well, contract. you could have been the lost leader to get him in business and who knows, like, you know, in terms of what well, we, the prop we've grown up together. We're, we have a great relationship. Uh, 
SpaceX and, you know, learned and we did too is through that whole process. And we are still their largest commercial uh, launch contract with eight successful launches, you know, in 2018-19. So believe me, we have a great dear relationship. Uh, I, I'm wishing them well in their whole broadband business. Again, that isn't what we do. I, I, if, if investors get one thing out of this, every time you hear a satellite goes into low Earth orbit, it doesn't mean all satellites in low Earth orbit do the same things. What what SpaceX Starlink does is totally different. They're they're trying to provide big broadband types to things, and so their terminals are much bigger, and they need power, and they're not mobile. I mean, they can be somewhat mobile, but they're going to be very expensive being mobile. We are about how how highly mobile can a device be? Can it be battery powered? Can it fit in the palm of your hand? Can it move at mock speeds and still operate well? And by the way, with the new network, I can put more speed through that now than I could, but I'm not trying to be a commodity supplier service to individuals or, or even ships and airplanes. I'm trying to provide a very unique safety specialty service that is very complementary to what Starlink is doing and everybody else, which is why we're kind of Switzerland. Everybody wants to sort of work with us to kind of complement their service on a ship or on an airplane. Right. You know, well, we'll be in the cockpit. They'll be in the cabin providing Wi-Fi. It's a very complimentary business. Well, why do you think that the launch costs haven't come down substantially? I mean, if you again, you look at Telesat, they, they're talking about very big numbers. Yes, they're going to use optical links, which I guess will be more expensive. But I mean, presumably, Elon's cost to launch that he's charging people has come down. I mean, actually, you would know that. Like, what are your launch costs now compared to? Well, I guess it doesn't really matter. Actually, at the end I, of night, it was all under the same contract, right? So you don't. Do you know so where his launch costs are bet, now versus know, what you contracted? We paid, you know. I don't remember the exact number, but let's say it's 60 to $65 million for a Falcon 9, you know, to launch, which was, by the way, the equivalent from an Arians boss and stuff was at least twice that much when we started. So, so SpaceX disrupted the whole launch industry and brought it down, but they haven't like gone since then and said, well, now that we're reusing things 10 times, we will launch it for $20 million. They just haven't done that because I don't think the market is completely elastic. I don't think they looked around and said everybody will have 10 times more stuff at 20 million than they will at 60. So they're starting to make their money back. Obviously, if they can drive their costs down, that's where SpaceX right. starts. So maybe it's just margin as opposed to. So what do you think? So then, so you did the contract in 2010. And then it took seven years for you to get your first launch. And then it took another two years to launch all 66 of, of your satellites. So it's nine years after the contract. It's it's Which ten years way, after the SPAC. Light speed. I mean, it's no, twelve years after. So that's and then, how it works. That's why I'm sort of struggling sometimes when you hear some of these new companies coming out and saying my network will be in operation next year, and I just sort of smile and go, oh, they're so young and naive, and I I wish them well. I mean, I hope that you know whether they're launching a, a telescope or you know. Whatever it is, everybody is so optimistic about how fast things take. And the new paradigm, by the way, in space is build really, really small stuff that's cheap and easy, but it only lasts a couple of years and we'll throw it away and hopefully throw it away, you know, and burn it up in the atmosphere. But then it will go away and we'll launch another one. Even Starlink satellites, for example, are that mindset where they go, instead of being 15 to 20 year satellites like ours, they're launching three to five year satellites. And that's fine. But if you're going to spend $10 billion every three to five years, you know, you better generate lots and lots of cash to do that. I don't want, I, I'm fortunate I have a CapEx holiday now for 10 years. Um, and, or more. Uh, or more. And, and, I'm, and I now can really generate lots of cash flow over that period of time, which other people, I don't know when they'll start generating the positive cash flow because they're constantly having to reinvest it into their network. So that's something to... You know, investors have to take a longer term view as opposed to just look at what does it take to get those satellites into space is what will it maintain, operate it, provide service for a long, long period of time, too. So going back to your comments about some of the similarities in terms of the interest, and clearly it is. I mean, Starlink, to me, is fascinating. I think what Elon's doing is is very interesting. I, I think people underestimate how how quickly he can get CPE down with some of his internal development. But if you go back to the post-Iridium bankruptcy, you had Teledesic. You had ICO, which is now basically going to be used as terrestrial spectrum in, in DISH's network, as is TerraStar. I guess Global Star is still around, but they went through through a bankruptcy. So well, they're, they're, a, they're a spectrum play, too, basically, these days. A new know? spectrum play, right, from that, from that standpoint. So when you think about, um, you know, kind of this next wave of, of many plants, do you think there's going to be similarities in terms of the number of companies that don't quite get it to happen? 
I hope not, you know, because I don't think it was healthy when all the uh, companies went out of business, you know, in 2000, 2001, 2002. You know, we had a, almost a 10-year kind of drought in the space industry. A lot of launchers went away until, you know, until about us in 2008, and nine, and, and uh, Skybox Imaging and a couple other companies, you know, um, it took a while to kind of recover from that. So I certainly hope, you know, I'm hoping that Telesat, um, you know, their, their Lightspeed network, that Starlink, that Amazon comes on board, that they, there's so much broadband capacity for all those guys that they make, all make money and that they're happy. Um, you know, would I invest a, a lot in that, that hope? No, not personally. And I'm glad that I have my little lane and that I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's a bit more of a niche than what they're doing. And, and I'm complimenting all, all those guys. So I like my business much more right now than the challenges they have. Uh, I don't know what will happen to them down the road. What's different now is maybe there's more smarter patient investors. I mean, I think a billionaire. Well, debt is a obviously smarter. a lot cheaper, right, well, during any of this process. I mean, the reason why we failed wasn't technology. The reason why we failed was lack of patience, right? You know, Motorola could have put $5 billion of their you know, $300 billion market cap or something aside, and, and they would be our owner. Right? right. It was a year. I mean, they, they basically gave up in less than a year after the launch, but there was a lot of pressure on the Galvins prior to that, prior, even prior to the, oh, sure. to the because first investors launch. investors want, you know, want only winners and they look at stuff like that and they say, use other people's money to make that business go. And so I would say that will probably happen again where they'll use a lot of other people's money and people won't put their own. But in some of these cases, it's just a lack of patience. It takes, it took us, I keep saying, you know, you saw the, you know, people quoted me as saying we're a 30 year overnight success story, you know, a little bit like that actress that comes out. I think out. we outlined a little bit of that here. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe 20 well, years, but. We, it was, it was 30 years from 1999 or whatever. 87, it was. 97, yeah. yeah. It's a little over 30 years, right? Yeah, you're and right. So suddenly we're, now if you take us even from the 20 years we're in commercial service, it took us 20 years. I think it's going to take a lot of these business to get truly free cash flow to the place where we are, where you you know got high leverage cash flows, it's going to take them potentially 15, 20 years or more. So I'm so hoping if they're patient, if their investors are patient and they're comfortable with that, all those businesses can be smashing successes in 2035 and beyond. It's just, will they have the patience to keep the money flowing into them until they're able to get the ecosystems developed like we did and the you know, all the solutions that will be there. And it's not just one terminal. It's going to be, you know, customer service and all over the world and all the things that they have to do. So, uh, you know, so, I think so there's a lot. So, so while you were executing on this new plan, which is obviously exciting to us based on some of the IoT and, and some of the improvements and some of the new services, which we'll get to later that you've enabled, but you also had a revenue stream that was growing, I think from 2013 to 2018, when you're in the midst of launching these new satellites, you added an incremental hundred million dollars of, of service revenue. And then the, and, and the conversion of that obviously is very high, 80, 85% incremental margins um, in terms of the, of the impact. What was yeah. happening there? Like what, what were some of those applications that you were getting on the old satellites and, and, you know, how much of that do you think kind of feeds into what you're going to do now? Well, you know, the, the old, you know, the new satellites do everything the old satellites do and a whole lot more, right? So it, it's a lot more flexible in how it can allocate bandwidth and it can, we can create a lot more interesting devices that are still small with small antennas, but are able to transfer pictures instead of just low data rate stuff. So what we had is this long track record of growth because pretty simple model, you know, we have this great network that works anywhere on the planet. We create more and more devices that are smaller and cheaper that can access it. And then we find more partners who want to build us into their solution, like a Caterpillar or a Komatsu or a Garmin or a, or you know, maybe a military contractor wants to create a sensor or something like that. And then they, without any money from us, they go out and take that technology, they do the development, they do the certification, they put it out there in place and it starts generating revenue. And that sort of has played itself out from you know, a few tens of thousands of subscribers back in you know, 2001 to today, over you know, almost 1.5 million or more sort of devices on our network growing it. 100,000, 150,000 plus kind of uh, a year as more and more devices come on our network. That's been a very tried and true model. Now, when we brought the new satellites in play a couple of years ago, 
we were able to offer a whole bunch of new services that take us a little bit up the value chain in broadband, which at the low end of broadband. Right. But for example, last year, we just got certified for ships to be able to be the sole satellite terminal on the ship for safety services. It's called GMDSS. And, it's been and why can you do that now versus the last constellation not enabling that market for you? Well, because uh, it's very, if you're going to only be that the big red button on a ship that will save you if you're going to be sinking. And, you know, we were all seeing a ship stuck in the Suez Canal and everything yeah. here. If you're going to push that button, which by law is the International Maritime Organization, they have a million requirements for that. And they, we said we can do all those. And they said, yeah, but your network is going to run out of gas in five or six years. You can't put these terminals on there. So we got a new network. Coming run out of gas. Their concern was not capacity. It was the fact that the, the useful life of the satellites weren't going yeah. to be long enough. That was the and, issue. And they were older satellites and, and these sort of things. And so when we had a whole brand new network and we could demonstrate all the requirements to them, they certified and said, you're good and you can go out there. So we already had that certification in aviation, so we, we can be put into the cockpit of airplanes for flight plans being sent back and forth to pilots. We needed it on ships. We have it in, in other areas like tracking trucking and tracking other things. So we've become this sort of safety, highly reliable, very cost-effective connection for critical assets in a very specific and unique applications. And the new satellites can now do all that that the old, old ones couldn't. And we and we were able to open up speed. I mean, we could do a maximum of 128 kilobits per second in the old satellites. That yep. was the old ISDN kind of rates. Now in a smaller antenna, about half the size, we can go up to almost 700, uh, you know, more than 700 kilobits per second in a terminal. So and honestly, to me, to me, like a, a, broad, a truly broad broadband guy, yeah, that's not I understand that, but 700 sounds like, so I, I, when, I can, when I conceptualize, you've got this great coverage. And like, okay, that's great for little bits of data, whatever it is, and you know, good phone calls, keeping our military safe. Um, but seven, what is seven hundred incrementally? What new applications does seven hundred or even five hundred open up that that you couldn't have serviced with the old satellites at hundred sure. kilobits? Well, again, you know, the antennas being only about this big instead of this big, and being able to operate anywhere on the planet. Immediately. So size of the antenna. So, but is the size? And by of the, the way, you can you can only use them for a short bit of time. Like you want seven hundred kilobits per second for like an, uh, like twenty minutes. You can only pay for twenty minutes. Where you know all other broadband terminals, you pay a per month charge for unlimited use. So those are typically hundreds or thousands of dollars per month that you use, you can use one of our terminals for $50 or $100 worth of service. And okay. there's a lot of applications that want to pay for use. By the way, since we're in L-band too, which L-band for your investors, that's a really good frequency in your cell phone ranges. All those broadband services, which are commodity services, are operating up in microwave frequency, at KA, KU, and those have rain fade. So what a lot of times they'll put one of our little satellite uh, terminals right next to their terminals. And when they, when the rain comes, they use us, which is fine. It doesn't cost me any cost to put that on the ship, but I get revenue for that ship. It's, it's and as I like said, a, it can be safety certified. So for example, I could be put in the cockpit of a Delta long haul yeah. airplane where they, the Wi-Fi in the back, I can't compete for it nor want to, but there's like 10 companies are competing for that. And they're beating each other up as to who's going to be the cheapest for it where there's only one company I compete with up in front and ours is the best service for that. So, so we'll go back to the, the critical um, infrastructure benefits, um, but let's first stick on the IOT for, for a moment, which is, you know, one of the things that seems like a good opportunity for you is that that antenna size has, has shrunk to a very small, and we have something in our report basically showing it the size of, of a pencil. So if you think about IOT applications, size and battery burn have to be major issues. Was that a result of the, the new Constellation launch? Is it a result of using L-band? Would you have gotten there? Let's assume that, that your satellites lasted, your old satellites lasted another 10 years. Is this that from was, your partners? That, yes, um, IoT, we, I'm, we were very fortunate when Motorola created our system in the early 90s, they built the perfect system for delivering, for, for connecting IoT from a satellite. Because it's low to earth, it works anywhere on the planet without any kind of, you know, regional stuff. And it can work when you said a pencil, we're talking about the eraser of the pencil, not the whole right. pencil. Okay, right. It's a very small, that's all it takes to make a connection to a satellite only 485 miles up instead of 20,000 miles away, right? And we can do that while the satellite or this device is moving at mock speeds. I mean, they're moving all around and we can make a highly reliable connection. And that's a, in the, you know, even today... 
the antenna that you talked about there is maybe two or three bucks. Yep. We can do a set, set that does a lot higher speeds for tens of dollars, not thousands of dollars, hundreds or thousands of dollars. I mean, that's, that's, that, that's a I very, so can we just pause on that? Ocean, that that's yeah, a very interesting the point because you're on, a, on an oil and gas pipeline or if you're in a heavy piece of heavy equipment, you really want something that's like a $50 radio and a, a, a you know, a $3 antenna. You can start saying, I could put that on my buses. I could put that on my trains. I could put that on my shipping containers. I could put that on all my uh, buoys in the ocean for tsunami warning. I could put that on oil and gas pipelines or on, heck, you could track sh sheep and, and cows. Though that might be, there are people coming in to do really, really low end, you know, really, it's not very high quality, but there will be other kinds of IoT, the sort of mass market IoT. We're not, we're not even trying to do every piece of IoT out there, you know. So that's a big juxtaposition to other LEO satellites that are launching that, to your point, are targeting a different market, a broadband market, whether it's, um, you know, SpaceX, um, you know, Amazon or, you know, whatever, the, the host of the one way. I mean, and, and they're talking about CPEs, like getting them under a thousand is going to be a huge win or $500 is going to be a huge win. And, and now you're talking like 50 to 100, completely different market. I get it. But like, from a total cost of ownership, that has to be a critical item for IoT. So is that because it's a Leo? Is it is it the L-band? Can they at some point have their own like IoT type devices that they will run off of these K-band Leo satellites that could theoretically compete with you? Yeah, no, I, I've talked to all those guys, and they what they they don't can't offer the IoT we we do. And if you ask them, they will agree with that because what they do is they're completely architected to bring a big pipe to a terminal, right? Now you don't need a big pipe. You don't need even $99 a month. Let's say you want to be on something that you can carry in your hand as a consumer device, like the many new Garmin products that use us, right? And you can buy us at Cabela's or REI's and you can get a text message. You can send information about where you are. You can have all this critical information going back and forth. And soon you'll probably be able to send pictures and things like that through our network, all through a very, very small battery powered, really light device. Now, could Starlink make one of those devices? Well, technically they could make a connection to one of them, but they would have to throw away all the bandwidth on their satellite to be able to connect to that satellite because they're not architected to do that. They have big pipes. And so they'd have to deliver a big pipe to a device that's only delivering them four to $5 worth of ARPU. And they throw all the money away from all the, uh, the rest of the things that that satellite can do. What they really, what they and OneWeb and Star, um, uh, Lightspeed and someday Amazon and maybe there'll be others, they all need to make big pipe connections to, to antennas. And maybe those antennas will get smaller, but they're still going to be many tens of dollars at least per month. I mean, uh, you know, Starlink is doing a great job of trying to forward level price into that market by saying it's $100 a month. That's that's good. Nobody's been that cheap before. But do they really want to come out and say it's only $10 a month? Because our average ARPU for IoT, you know, we're talking about devices that are sending so little data back and forth that even if they double or triple the amount of data, they still aren't going to spend more than six, seven, nine dollars, fifteen dollars. That's what they want to spend. And and you're not going to see any of those guys change the nature of their network to go after five ten dollar customers it doesn't right. make sense how, because how every one of those applications has to be engineered and built and designed and they're just not built to do that so you will if you ask any of them they'll say no no, no we, our iot isn't what iridium does they're a completely different approach and we yeah. like what they're doing and we may even work together you know? how long have those low-priced um, and very small antennas been available to you from from your from your partners well the really small like the two three to four dollars antennas have been around for 15 years since we mm -hmm. started that they're the ones that are operating the in the majority of our iot applications mm -hmm. the new antennas we're developing now which we call certus midband services you know we yep. have this 9770 modem and there's new iot modems coming that we're developing those are going to be able to go 20 kilobits to 100 kilobits per second so 20 you know so you're saying back. keep the small form factor which has been but, an advantage but, but we're increase the bandwidth in the apple yeah, the antennas are going to be this big by this big around, right. and they're going to, and there may be tens of dollars instead of just two dollars or four dollars. Right. You still need to have a little bit more antenna there to make the connection, but it will not, and they'll still be battery powered. They still use very low power. Mm -hmm. They're still going to be. There'll be something that you could put on a drone, for example. You know, that is flying around. You could 
you could put it on a car because it's only uh, adding tens of dollars. You know, even right. even Elon says when when he said, "Well, you're going to put it on maybe every Tesla." He says, "No, you can't put a Starlink antenna on a Tesla because <laughs> the smallest it will go on that would be the whole size of the top of the roof, every part of it, right?" Right. Our antenna still will fit as a little, maybe even in the blade in the back with the GPS antennas, right? So, but is the issue then with the new the new constellation is that you're continuing this like, okay, we're here for IoT, our antennas are small, but now the the speeds that we can provide from the new satellites are still staying in the same small form factor. And yes, maybe the CPE or the antennas are going to be $10 as opposed to two, which is a 5X increase, but it's addressing a different revenue opportunity for IOT. It'll be a higher ARPU because the customers are using it might be sending pictures from game cameras or even low res video and that kind of stuff. And you can imagine there'll be a lot more value in that. So maybe our ARPUs for those applications will go from, you know, eight, nine, 10, eleven dollars up to twenty, twenty-five, thirty dollars a month or something like and that. Is this a latent market or is this a new like people that haven't connected these applications before or are you taking share from someone else that was delivering that service with perhaps a larger antenna it's primarily a new market there has never been a product that will do what we do out in the marketplace Um, no one has built a very small highly portable highly mobile device that does more than 2.4 kilobit per second in a really serious kind of way 2.4 right so this is much i mean Inmarsat has a broadband terminal but you need Lots and lots of dollars to put the antenna in, and it needs to be pointed towards their satellite, you know, in the southern sky. So, which, which industries Nobody have the most really interest in something? Do. So, if it's a new market, which what are the industries, the enterprises that that have the most interest that we should be watching? That'll be your yeah, so, kind of driver of growth within IoT. You know, of, of our 450, 400 plus 50 partners, you know, 15, 20, 30 of them already are starting to build this first generation modem that we're building in called the 9770 into their applications. And we are seeing things like um, uh, products for drones, products for, um, uh, because they need, uh, you know, not necessarily taking pictures, but the command and control infrastructure that's really reliable. So if you're going to send, you know, a drone to deliver something to someone, mm-hmm. you want to you don't want to just track where it is, but you want to know a lot more about how it's going because this is, you know, you want to know where the right. really ended up and what did it look like there. Maybe it'll take a picture and send the picture back or whatever. Right. Um, so, you, so it sounds like you're saying less than less of a monitoring business where like, hey, just tell me you're there or whatever it is or the tuna buoy or whatever it is to more of a control application that that's control, required. And, and, these- maybe, and maybe a visual application where we're seeing like, for example, going from is the door being open? Or is it open or closed? You know, and is the alarm going on or off? Which you can do for a very small amount of dollars, and there is being done today. To can you take me? Can you take a picture? Something just moved there, and send me the the picture of what is in front of the door of my remote, um, you know, uh, facility out there in the middle of nowhere right now. I couldn't afford to do that before. I certainly wasn't going to put a VSAT terminal for that. Mm-hmm. But now I got a whole package solution from you that might be you know, hundreds of dollars at most all in, and I can now have a complete security solution. Or you might see, you know, we're seeing things in the oil and gas, we're seeing some transportation applications, we're seeing some stuff in the scientific community that really want to- Well, I'm going to jump ahead on, on you a little bit here um, and, and and just talk about Satellus a little bit, which is, because you're talking about autonomy type solutions and Satellus, a company that I think you own, what, about 16 or 17% in, um, it has a business model to significantly enhance and improve location, which I would think that, A, a I know like that's important for 5G um, cell sites that, that, that the clocking is and what you do and, and enable through Satellus is important. But when we think about, you know, a car, like everyone talks about 5G, I know like coverage of 5G is not there. You're not going to have that connectivity wherever you go. Is this the type of thing that if autonomy takes off, whether it's through drones or food delivery or, or ultimately even Tesla's that this is, are you guys uniquely positioned for this market and who would be the competitors be? Yeah, I think we have a, a number of assets for the autonomy market, you know, because we do boil down to things that could be cost effectively going into already today. We're talking about autonomous ships. We're talking about aircraft that are autonomous, for example, self-landing airplanes in, a, in an emergency that need a link for weather information to be sent mm-hmm. into the cabin so they can reroute around things. That's that's going on today. Um, uh, cars. Somewhat, you know, I think so. I think we could be part of that. But I would bet right now one of our partners is using us to deliver a a PKI key because 
there's all this software that keeps going in the car, but do you really want to deliver it all over an unsecure network? Because somebody could take over that software. Yep. So what if a, a key could come out of band in that, into every Just a car key. at a really low cost that says you can't unlock it unless you can yep. prove through the Iridium network it's good? Now, you mentioned Satellus. Satellus is, um, you know, it's a, I love I love Satellus because it's one of these applications that's again unique, can't be done over anybody else's network because it, it uses inter-satellite links and all this stuff. But what it does, we paint uh, um, on the ground, let's say in all of the US, a footprint, we broadcast in a position, Satellus broadcast timing information to chips that could be in your phone, could be in uh, really, really small, low-cost devices. They can pick up this thing inside buildings even, right? And it can be good enough time that if the GPS is, is which is quite fragile, as everybody knows and is learning, if it's being jammed, if it's being spoofed, or if you just can't even receive it because you're inside a building. For example, you're in a, you have a base station in a building, that one, a 5G base station you want to put in a building. Well, right now, every one of those needs a GPS source. Well, if it's yep. inside your, your IT closet, you've got to run a wire up to the roof. Right. You got to get roof rights and you got to put this little stupid GPS antenna up there, but you're spending all this money. Well, Satellus can actually deliver a timing signal in there for that 5G base station through many walls. I know we're a satellite system, but this is using a specific part of our satellites that can broadcast even through walls and everything. And it can get that timing signal in the building. And so they're seeing all kinds of applications on the cons on the consumer commercial side to bring timing onto base stations. Maybe in building, uh, you can imagine. Uh, I just think about uh, the location benefit. I just think of that, like even down. even how my iPhone works in Boston, which is a disaster. Like you go to Boston, like I guess you're too far far north of the equator. My my iPhone thinks I'm like two streets away, and now we're saying that we have to densify the five G networks, and you can't even locate my phone today. So to your point, like if it requires this location and this clocking it would seem like you, we can't necessarily rely on the U.S. government system. So I just kind of take that to the next step in terms of these automation applications, like, like how important is... I do believe automation applications that really rely, especially, for example, on precise precision, you know, that they need multiple... It's not enough to say, I'll just use my GPS facility because I could be driving alongside that car, jam you, and suddenly you go veering off into the street. So you need multiple sources and you need to be able to validate what's really going on. And if you have multiple sources and they start disagreeing with each other, you might want to say, let's stop the car instead of letting it, you know, be diverted off the highway and crash. I think Iridium is going to be one of the technologies. It won't be the only technology, but I think we're unique. Well, what are some of the other ones then that we should think about in terms of that would be a competition for you for that app? Because that's a new, interesting application that obviously is not here today, but could be a future revenue opportunity. Who are you competing with? Um, there are, you know, the Department of Transportation just did a study of all the technologies that can that can protect GPS. Uh, they just put out the study about a month or two ago because they're going to the U.S. government saying, you need to protect our critical infrastructure, our water systems, our power grid, our, our communication systems, and you need to pick a technology. And they picked that the Iridium Satellis technology was one of the, it was ready today and, and it works really well. It was one of the top two. There were a bunch of others that relied upon you know, everything from cesium atoms being remembering where they are and all kinds of stuff, but they were all out in the future. There were some terrestrial technologies that sort of worked well enough, but they were subject to somebody, you know, hurting the terrestrial facility. So it wasn't protected like from space. So we were pretty excited to see, wow, the government is saying that we really are ready and able and one of the very few technologies that is, is ready. And the other ones weren't even satellite technologies. They were sort of, let's they didn't exist today, but if we put ground transmitters around the world and we had receivers that could pick those things up, you could triangulate them using like Loran technology. Remember that right. from 20, Correct. 30 years ago, sort of an upgraded version of that. So, no, there's not a lot of competition to it. It's very unique. And what's interesting is it's ready today. So part of that coverage is the fact that you're using these links, meaning that the satellites are in the air and they're communicating with each other. Um, based on uh, these They're routing links. information in space. It's like a big mesh network in space. Everything goes up wherever you are in the world. It could be at the North Pole. We have satellites overhead that will relay it to a ground station. You don't, doesn't, we don't care where you are in the world. It works just as well any place on the planet. That's versus, versus the competition, um, and I think Ken's background probably shows that with the lines showing the links, but with the, with the competition being the bent, like if you had a bent pipe, meaning that 
if my Leo was going over the North Pole, that there theoretically would have to be an Earth station there to connect it. Otherwise, that that they're not receiving any information or they're storing that information in the satellite. And then you're waiting some amount of time later when it actually is over an earth station to deliver that data to the ground where your delivery is instantaneous. It's instantaneous. It's it's in, it's in less, it's in milliseconds, you know? Um, So RF is a lot cheaper, I think than laser links. So, so the laser links or fiber links, whatever, not fiber links, that'd be funny tying them with, with actual fiber um, that Telesat is talking about. Like, what are the, what do you think of the pluses and minuses are in terms of the links that are used? I mean, I would have loved, I mean, it would have been nice to put optical links on our satellites, but they're, they are a lot more expensive. They weren't ready 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. They're starting to come down in price. So I think Telesat needs to put optical links because they're going to have big broadband pipes and they're going to have to aggregate that. And you wouldn't be able to do that very easily across RF links. So they need to have, have cross links. They and, and uh, Starlink look like they're starting to implement some cross links. I think that's smart because, you know, you go back to the early days of wireless too and remember that it's about coverage, coverage, coverage. You know, anybody who says the reason why you don't have a cricket phone in your, you know, is because you don't know exactly where you can use it. Right. I mean, I'm sure you have one of the, I mean, we're talking about satellites. So technically I thought that's, that's part of the big cell cycle, which is the coverage. So if you, (laughs) I would think you'd want the links to provide the best coverage. Yeah. It's still, you know, but the North pole, who needs to serve the North pole, right? It's hard to serve the North pole because it's easier to put a a satellite at the equator. Well, you know, who goes over the North pole UPS uh, flights, you know, there's sensors. The DOD likes to uh, have stuff up in far Northern area. There's a lot of um, earthquake sensors. So, you know, we put that in. People thought we were crazy, or they thought Motorola was crazy to do it that cover the whole Earth at once. Turns out to be that's been our magic and secret sauce. And then Spectrum is another part of the secret sauce, meaning that the L band is is lower on the band. I think you know people that follow my work know we've talked a lot about in terrestrial networks how Spectrum differs. The higher it is, the worse the propagation characteristics. Um, it sounds like you've got a similar type of thing. And maybe talk about that in terms of your global authorization. Maybe some of your L-band compatriots don't have um, global authorization, um, which yeah, impacts that. What are, Look, Motorola spent a lot of time and energy in the late 80s and early 90s creating this, what was called the big Leo bands, right? And, and in the day, they, there was spectrum available in L-band, you know, and S-band, which were a really very valuable spectrum bands because they're down where uh, you can go through rain, you can go through a lot of a lot of stuff. It propagates extremely well. And there's a lot of devices, by the way, that can do LNS because the cell phones operate in those frequencies. That's all been allocated 20 years ago. There is no more LNS band for anybody. Everybody is kind of trying to reuse what's out there. And well, there's know, a battle over the 12 gigahertz band. I mean, how, how do you think that plays out? Because obviously that's, it sounds like it's pretty critical for Starlink to get it. Um, Dish would yeah. like to use it for um, for 5G on a terrestrial basis. You've still got some, I think, broadcasters yeah. using it. I mean, I how do those a, things? Yeah, so I mean, I'm not. I don't have a dog in that hunt, so I don't really know. I mean, everybody's had to move upwards to, as you know, KU, KA band. They're even talking about B band, which is way, way up there, and X band. I mean, this is this is. There's a lot of spectrum available, but it's mm-hmm. you know, if you even have uh, a rain cloud come between you and the session, you start getting problems with it, and you need big. You need big terminals to do it. I mean, even when they shrink them down, you're not going to get them smaller than, you know, very large family-sized pizza plate, which doesn't exactly sew into a military's, uh, you know, uniform or put, you know, be something you can clip around your belt or something like that. It's not that kind of service. It takes a lot of, of uh, speed. So the fights are up there about, you know, KU and KBAN. We're not interested in that those areas. We're not interested in that spectrum because we were fortunate to get a global you know, rights to this L band and it's been very valuable. How, how, so when you guys talk about your opportunity, let's take a ship, for example, or a cruise ship where maybe they'll use a K band solutions to provide internet for everyone in their cabins, but in, in the on deck or on the bridge that Iridium is what you want to use because of the coverage and the reliability. But is the spectrum also an issue there? Meaning that like, does raining clouds really impact that, that that's part of the reliability pitch that you're making to, to your, customer base yeah i don't and in some cases it's not you know look if you're a small ship if you're one of those ships that's you know the uh you know catching tuna you see the deadliest catch kind of stuff they don't really have they don't have the money to pay for a big antenna uh fixed right, antenna cost that, as well yeah. they have to pay you know five hundred thousand dollars a month because they're they don't even 
you know, they abuse their their workers anyway, and they're allowed to get their, you know, their email and stuff like that, but they're not going to give them free internet connection yeah. like home, right? Uh, in that case, we're the perfect one for sort of pay what, what you use, and you can get your email, and you can surf the net and do it for a lot less cost. However, if you are a bigger ship, you go and say, I'll put one of those bigger antennas on there, but they don't work when the bad weather comes. They don't work in certain ports where there's interference with other PSAT units. They don't work in some oceans because people aren't providing bandwidth there. So they end up putting our L-band as a companion to it. And what happens is this: the, the network on the ships automatically switches over when they go out of coverage on the VSAT, and they start using us. And we generate a couple hundred dollars a month on those terminals. Almost every VSAT terminal goes out with an L-band terminal, and a lot of times it's ours. Got it. So let's so let's go. So you, we've now talked about the Leo, the crosslink coverage, the spectrum advantage, this um, IoT growth opportunity that may even extend into autonomy. Um, let's talk briefly about the guys that kind of saved the company before your time, which is is the military, which are they're involved in a very long term contract. I know it's not anything for you to think about this year, next year, the year after that. It's six years from now. Um, presumably, given your reliability, that there's a high likelihood of renewal. Are there also opportunities to get additional services from them, either on the renewal or even prior to that in terms of – and I'm not talking about like your voice business where like if there's some type of skirmish, you're going to have other governments that obviously want to use your, your products, but – but the, the 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 kind of underlying military contract that that you have are there is there a way to expand that when it does come up from renewal or earlier? Oh sure, you know um, the the more users that they put on it's not you know they call it the world's largest family plan because you know it's kind of all in you know you can keep putting devices on it and still use it for the same price. Right. I mean, for, people can see us. It's, and I'm know, guessing that they've they've been utilizing well, that, right? And yeah, adding it's many. It's $100 million a year, and they can use unlimited devices. Fortunately, these Have are you all ever talked about the number of users that are on it, the military users that are on it today compared yeah, to like we, five? We list how many people that is, and it's been growing every year. And it's mm-hmm. made the cost per user come down, which so they like that, right? Yep. And, and in fact, they're starting to build us into all kinds of sensors, and they're building us into... Uh, devices to track their uh, all their assets, and it's being used for push-to-talk radios, and yep. it's being used for secure uh, all kinds of stuff. So the, as that expands, when we come up to renewal someday, we'll talk about well, how can we keep making that a good deal for you? What's new is you know we didn't put Satellis in there, we didn't put um, you know which which uh, we didn't put I'm sorry what the Certus I meant we didn't put Certus in there. So our broadband service, which is um, you know higher speed. They're now building a gateway to bring that in. They already do hundred plus million dollars a year in Inmarsat L-band services, which isn't global, isn't secure. Right, because they would use their own Earth station. They're not going to use. They're not going to share an Earth yeah, station with other people. So, so you're saying that with them, there might. So you're saying with the military, there might be another. There's another incremental opportunity Absolutely. based on that. We believe there's going to be a lot of service broadband and mid-band services that they're going to be using, and that's above and beyond the. The, the fixed price contract. Would that just show up in your commercial line? I mean, how would you guys report that? Would that be in the military line or a separate line? Uh, we're going we're gonna to put that in our broadband line, I think. Um, you know, gotcha. we'll we'll break, we'll leave kind of government for sort of the fixed price, and then we'll add in uh, a broadband, and we'll show that we'll break out government broadband and commercial broadband and that sort of. Before we end on Arion, let's just talk a little bit about the numbers. Um, obviously, like I said, you know, it's been a lengthy time. You're now generating a lot of free cash flow. Your leverage is going to get down below three and a half times. You don't anticipate CapEx for at least X number of years, eight years, 10 years, 12 years, whatever it is. You'll pay taxes, but you know, it seems like based on how your CapEx is even going to level off further in a couple of years. Um, a lot of visibility. But do you do you ever think about like, you know, what do you think the ultimate leverage targets are? Um, do you get concerned being a company that's gone through a bankruptcy that like, as you get closer to maybe another constellation in 10 or 15 years, you want to continue to take that leverage closer uh, or just is there is the rates in the market right now um, well, so attractive that it's just a capital distribution story from here on out? Two and a half to three and a half times is something we've been advertising for the last couple of years is we think is a really, really nice leverage target anything lower seems to be inefficient of capital anything higher seems to be you know we're never going to let ourselves be like intel sat that gets nine ten times you know leverage or something like that now that we've deleveraged down below three times and we're going to soon be sort of uh, soon be in that two and a half to th- i mean sorry below four times 
we're going to soon be in that two and a half to three and a half times range. And, and we've said a couple of years ago, we're going to return capital to shareholders when that happens. In fact, we, as you saw earlier this year, we announced that we're going to be doing it even if the, if, you know, the board has allowed us to even be opportunistic right. at this point and up to $300 million in, in potentially the near term on that sort of thing. So we are, we are, I mean, the reality is you can spend that type of money on share repurchase and continue um, to take we'll still, we'll leverage still now. Leveraging and we'll still generate, we're going to generate a lot of cash over there. But if you think about it, if, you don't, if you're CapEx light and your gross margin, your incremental margins are 85%. I mean, there are other business models that would operate at much higher leverage ratios and are returning that incremental capital to people. So is is three and a half in, in some contexts might be too low and that the, maybe a higher leverage rate, especially given where rates are in the market today. Or is there always going to be this kind of like, well, it's a satellite industry. People are always going to worry about bankruptcies or the next big CapEx plan. Like, how do yeah, you think about it? there's a balance there. I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a balance. People are going to say, I, you know, we still, I mean, I've leaned into sort of our history because, frankly, I think at this point, you know, we should demonstrate that we've learned a lot from it and, and are, are pretty savvy and pragmatic about it. Uh, but, yes, people are worried about high CapEx businesses long term. Ultimately, we will replace the network with a more powerful, maybe even multi-service platform. We're not going to even have to start spending a dime on it for quite a few years from now, which is good. By that time, it's hard not to see us being a lot larger and a lot more cash and a lot more generation. So we're not going to have to be financing as much of the network next one uh, as we did, if any at all. Yeah. You know, maybe we'll flex our our up a little bit during the capex cycle from two and a half to three and a half. You know, and we're we were running at two and a half, maybe we'll get back up to three and a half or four, but we can, we won't have to go to the markets and be raising money like we did last time or creating things like Aaron, where we had to create Aaron the last time. This time we can maybe do it because we're just. Certainly coming out of the pandemic and, and, you know, which obviously has hampered growth recently. Um, it's funny, like, you know, you talk about your timing, you finish your launch in 2019 and you step right into, right into a pandemic. So um, hopefully. Uh, very lucky that we, we didn't, uh, we had finished our network before the pandemic uh, was graced us uh, and started. Believe me, that was, that was luck. We don't always so, have so let's let's finish off with um, with Arion because it's it's such an interesting company. Um, you own, I think, whatever it is, thirty seven percent now. It's getting dropped down to twenty two percent based on the numbers that I'm looking at. You you know, um, you might not be getting a, be a great deal on what they're going to buy you down, <laughs> but you buy you down your stake in. Uh, I think the implied valuation for this company is is potentially much higher. And for those that don't know it. Um, I mean, the service, which is a payload that Iridium gets money from and gets revenue from in terms of a contract, but the services that they're offering to the airline industry, in short, can effectively, you know, reduce air times and, and have the airline industry act more. So I like, I'm just wondering, when are we going to see that headline about, okay, hey, you know, a mainstream media, your flight from New York to London is going to get reduced by, you know, X number of minutes thanks to this this great new, new technology. If you could just talk a little bit about... Well, it, in fact, it already is. It just hasn't hit the headline, but I think it will one of these days. I mean, since traffic is down by 50% because of the pandemic, long haul flights, and since Arian's being used to control the whole North Atlantic now, I mean, they can see every airplane in real time and can control it as well as they can control a flight over Chicago or New York. I mean, that's literally how good it is. So they look and say, they're now telling pilots going from London or Paris to New York or, you know, D.C., you just tell us how you want to fly. The old days, for the last 50 years, there are these six tracks that were created called the North Atlantic tracks. And you had to get on those tracks in the conga line because they couldn't see you. And you had to fly just the right speed at the right altitude. Right, with a lot of spacing. With, but with 60 miles. I mean, today they can get down to, you know, they can go 15 miles or 10 miles, you know, at this point. And they can put... So they're basically saying, you just follow the most efficient route for yourself, and just like you do in, in North America, and we will let you fly that right now. And the whole goal, and of course, the airlines are pretty thrilled because they're saving a lot of fuel right now, and they're they're getting shorter, you know, block-to-block -block times. And they're saying, could you make sure you keep this going even after the traffic starts picking up here, you know, next year as we all start flying to Europe again? And I, I think they're getting really comfortable with using this. You know, 37 countries or something now are implementing this thing. This is being implemented around places like India. It's being, you know, it's it's all around uh, the North North America across 
a lot of places in Euro control and around Europe. It's in Africa. It's in South America. Um, I mean, I I've estimated they get 50% share, but if, if, if they, you're improving flight times, you're making things more safe. Obviously, they could have located the unfortunate crash of the Malaysian Airlines, which that plane was, was never found. They can make our flights shorter. That saves fuel, like, you know, that's green, <laughs> right? So why shouldn't they get a, a significant share in terms of every one of these air traffic controllers or whatever the term is that, that's being used to sign up for them? I think they all will. I mean, I, I think they're on a track to sign everybody up ultimately to do this. It's become like the global international standard for surveillance. It kind of is going to, it's augmenting radar, but they're going to get rid of radars eventually. And in certain places, they're not investing in radars because this works from space equally well for what they're doing. And so it's less expensive. It's less maintenance. It really is kind of a whole transformation of what they call the surveillance layer of, of air traffic control. And so I think ultimately, you know, as the pandemic ends, they're going to continue. And yes, they're really high. You think our margins are good. Arian's margins are great. You keep lamenting what they're going to pay us down for our south. But remember, when we did that deal, you know, five years ago or seven years ago, whatever it was, what we really wanted is our ownership structure of Arian to be the customer base, right? Because we were still wondering, could we make this a global standard? So we wanted to sign up NAV Canada. We wanted to sign up the UK. We wanted to sign up... Um, Ireland, Italy, Denmark, these are all our in investor partners in Arian, you know, because we didn't know, maybe somebody else would want to come along and have a competitive service. You know, now that the industry kind of owns this and they really like, you know, the pricing structure, they like how it operates, it's, it's certified. I mean, it's the first time any private company has gotten certified by the aviation authorities to provide something like a radar service. Usually you got to be a governmental entity to do that. They've, they've gone through every hoop to make this thing. And by the way, you should see the data that they've been collecting. They know where every airplane has been sec literally twice a second. I was listening to a presentation that they did yesterday. And the other fascinating they, thing is, is they're, I get, they're, they're tracking where the, um, the Google loon balloons are, uh, you know, off the coast of Africa. So, I mean, I think to your point, they've, they've got this well, data. You can, and you can imagine with AI and machine learning, you can start using that to control traffic around airports and provide flow control around. You can make things so much more efficient. And they're starting to sell that data as well, repackaging not in real, for real-time control, but for non-real-time uh, control. So they have these things called commercial data services now that they're starting to really see as a, as a market as well, because it's such a rich data set to create. If we have any questions from the audience, I forgot to mention this earlier, but I think we, it was good to cover this kind of holistic approach to, to looking at Iridium. I really appreciate it. But if, if you want to fire in a last minute question, please be my guest. But um, this has been great. I mean, I think obviously the IOT opportunity is huge. Um, you know, what you're, what you're, what's to tell us and Ariane are doing, I think is, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Ariane. Yeah, Ariane. Um, Arian um, are doing, or obviously like, you these want. are game changers, right? These are game changers. Even, even Satellis in terms of making location better um, to me can be like a game changing type application. I think uh, that's the heart of our team is that we do very unique things extremely well and nobody seems to want to compete with us on it. And so we have this great, I call it a, this traffic lane that nobody seems to want to build a, a, a comparable ones. There's a lot of people building in other lanes of the space industry and we're rooting them on, but that's not, maybe they touch a little bit on, on us, you know, at the high end of broadband or at the really low end of IoT, but it's not really in our core space. So what we do is really, really, and that gives so us what, So what do you do all day? You've got this very predictable recurring revenue business. It's growing. Now you're generating free cash flow. Like what, it seems like you got a pretty easy job now. You know, we haven't even started to exploit this brand new network. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff we're building into it right now. We're practically re-architecting our whole satellite system because it's all software controlled to make it more efficient. There's a lot of interesting technology. Bringing on new partners, new applications, that's my the best part of my day is talking to somebody new who wants to embed us into their solution too. And we do that with, I don't know, like last year we did close to 20 new partners. Usually we're doing 30, 40 partners. So that was the pandemic year. This year, it's starting to pick up again. I think we're going to bring a lot more partners in with a lot more technology. Um, those are That's a lot of fun. I mean, uh, every day. And then I got to be honest, with all this cash flow, everybody is talking to everybody these days in the, in the space industry, trying to figure out, is there other partnerships? Is there other ways of kind of, you know, working together in some ways for the long-term future? And 
I'll be busy with that. I'm sure in the next. Interesting. Meaning partnerships with like K band satellite providers, that type of stuff. I mean, do you know combined services, or could our services work more effectively together? Or hey, we're building a network, and maybe you already have a network, and can we use your network instead of our network, and all that kind of stuff. So there's, I think there's a lot of opportunity being out there, having all this experience, having been out there 20 years, having a really really robust uh, environment with a brand new network gives us a lot of opportunity. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing whatever these new applications or partnerships are going to uh, are going to show. We hope to spend more time on Arian and Satellis as well. Uh, Matt and Ken, thank you, thank you very much for this overview, and hopefully we can come back and and maybe do more focused stuff on the numbers and and things like that that are <laughs> that are that are more investor driven. But this was great. Thanks, guys. Okay, take care. Well, have you a great too. week. See you. Thanks everybody for joining. Us.